Welcome to GOLA. I'm Katie Parla, a Rome-based food and beverage writer, culinary guide, and cookbook author. And I'm Danielle Caligari, assistant professor of Italian at Dartmouth College and a certified specialist of wine. Hey, what's up, Danielle? Hi, Katie. It's so good to see you. It's great to see you, too. It's been a real treat to have you in Rome for many, many months leading the Dartmouth program. And, well, we do want to eventually dive into our episode to use a pun that's related to the topic we'll be covering. (laughs) I would love a little roundup of what you've been up to as the baddest, most amazing Dartmouth Italy Studies professor. Oh, thanks, Katie. That's really nice of you to say. And uh, of course, you're a big part of the reason why this program was such a success this fall, despite all of the challenges of moving people during a still ongoing pandemic time, no matter how many times we try to add some limitation to that, um, to that unfolding disaster, we're still living it. So uh, getting students here, getting everybody into a place together safe and being able to move around and create in a structure that made sense pedagogically and used our presence together to the best of our ability was tough. Got to prioritize pedagogy. <laughs> How many people are we talking about? And what What's the deal with this program? Is it special? This program, well, it's special and not special in the sense that I, I like to think of it as very special and I it's give it my special. very special attention. But it is also something that any undergraduate at, and certainly at Dartmouth can do. And uh, that's part on actually a crucial element for, for us in our department of the uh, percorso di studio or the plan of study for any student who wants to follow a major minor in Italian or really even participate in Italian studies. So with your help and the help of many of our other cherished friends in the food and beverage industry, I brought a group of seven students here and from September until Right now, end of November, we went all around Lazio and Rome and tried to understand how food and beverage work together to construct identity and create community. And uh, I think we did a pretty okay job. And it was all conducted in Italian. That's a requirement of the freaking program, man. Very much so. Yes. Unlike many other study abroad programs, I am... Delighted to say that Dartmouth continues to insist on the use of Italian, which I think some people would understand to be a a fun and interesting part of doing a program like this. And that's certainly true. But it's much more than that because it's all about challenging yourself to understand what it feels like to live in another place in a really, truly immersive condition. And that's a struggle, right? And the struggle is part of understanding how... Uh, it's uh, how cultures are different and the effort that we all have to make to understand each other. Yeah. And something that's really impressive is that it's not just the classroom instruction that's in Italian, but the students signed a contract that they're going to speak Italian exclusively, including amongst themselves. And they do. When we hang out, when we have aperitivo or dinner together or meet for coffee, we speak in Italian and they speak in Italian to each other, even when I'm not engaging them directly. So uh, I think many of them probably went from having a, a very, you know, intermediate level of Italian and a lot of discomfort in terms of their ability to use it to an incredibly fluent and comfortable level. And that's been, uh, among many other things, really wonderful to see. 
So awesome. And we drank lots of craft beer in Italian. We went to Ostia Antica in Italian. Mm -hmm. We visited La Villana yeah. up in Gradoli in Italian. We went to our friend Roberto Pezzella at Pezzepane in Frosinone in Italian. Went to Colepardo to a distillery in Italian. Uh, oh, we went to the Forum Boarium and the weird-ass Garum Museum and the Circus Maximus. That's bizarre and weird and fun yeah, in we, Italian. We did a lot. We really did a lot. I know. I'm, I'm, I'm listening to you and thinking... I need a nap, but... Yeah. Well, I know all of that because I just wrote my invoice, so... Uh, I, good. Like, good. I, yeah. <laughs> Make sure we pay you. Do, do, do you look into that? Yeah. I refreshed all the themes and dates, basically. Amazing, so. yeah. <laughs> October yeah. 1st was so fun. Oh, so was September 17th. Yeah. There, were so many, there were so many excellent days. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, been great. It's really been fantastic. Wonderful. Yeah. Really wonderful. And I'm, re I'm re reminded mm -hmm. of our time in Grodley overlooking... The mirror that is Lake Bolzena. Oh, God, I love that segue, Katie. Thank you. I'm, Thank you. I'm, I'm stravolta from your incredible talent at moving from lauding my program to inviting everyone to follow us into the wild world of Italian water. Or water. If you're from Philadelphia, Philadelphia, or South Jersey. Uh -huh. uh, I'm not, oh. but water is something that we say on Long Island. Got so, it, got it. you know, either way we can offend people's ears, that's for sure. Absolutely. Well, let's jump into the water subject. Where mm -hmm. should we start with this? Because it's kind of this like free flowing topic. You know I mean? It sure is. It's it's tricky because there's a lot to be said about the contemporary culture of water consumption in Italy in the fact that we, uh, as we're right here in Rome together right now, one of the first things that happens when you bring a foreigner into an Italian context is that they are particularly Americans who are really, really interested in hydration. <laughs> uh, you find out or they find out uh, through you that the practice of water consumption here is very different uh, for so many reasons. And Rome has its own wild world within that. So, um, you, you know, that's coming from this angle. Um, if we come from the Lago di Bolzena angle and talk about where we visited together in Alto Lazio uh, just a couple of weeks ago, you uh, add to it a whole other level of interaction with water on the Italian plane that I think is very unfamiliar to many people, which is the understanding of taking water for health and particularly thermal water or acque termali, which is uh, hot springs sort of generically reproduced, but actually a part of a, a vast and long history of understanding how water affects the body inside and out. And those bookends are equally complicated and important and really present, I think, in the Italian mindset. Absolutely. I mean, I've been drinking water my whole life, and it wasn't <laughs> until I moved to Italy that I'd un I understood that it could be analyzed, yeah. um, sort of attacked from a number of different angles. It could be infused with superstition. Yeah. Was not aware of that. Mm -hmm. And it's also the object of like a major commercial industry, which in fact, I mean, I could speak for Rome, um, which is where I live, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, it kind of drives people to have very divisive ideas about what, not just what brand of water, but whether you should drink the tap water, even though it's like kind of the same stuff that comes out of the free faucets and uh, in the, the Nazoni all over town, even yeah. though some of it's bottled at the source, like yeah. literally the Egeria spring mm -hmm. that fills the 500 milliliter water bottles sold at Tavole Calde all over mm -hmm. Rome. 
um, is, uh, is, you know, bottled there or you can go fill it up there. Um, and some people are scared of it. Some people really think it's good for you. So there's all of this sort of like, yeah, like more than superstition, like mythology around, around the aqua. Absolutely. If we, we could roll it back about as far as we want, it's water, obviously, but I, as you know, and as our listeners know, I take great pains to let everyone who's listening to us know that the relationship with water has always been generally a good one in Italy. (laughs) And it is not a question of cleanliness of water that we're talking about, because we can, if we, if we even just limit ourselves to ancient Roman context, which we can go back farther than certainly with water, but with many of the things that we talk about, we, we have. Uh, but if we just go back to an ancient Roman context from uh, the Republic into the a- Empire, we're looking at a an Italian peninsula that was uh, well furnished with as much clean water as anyone could require. Um, Romans were expecting a good quality of water, and they could expect a good quality of water. It was brought to them by the very fine and increasingly developed infrastructure of the empire, especially. But even before that, there was an understanding of how to use groundwater and access clean water all the time. And up through and including the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, clean water was available on the Italian peninsula, and different qualities of water were available and tracked and Um, elaborated into the scheme of health and wellness that was really important to Italian or to would later be Italians or to people living on the peninsula. In fact, it's not really until uh, to some extent very this this almost doesn't touch the Italian peninsula in the same way that does any other places in in Europe and the kind of greater industrialized world to use scare quotes there again. But it wouldn't be a huge problem to any Italian community to worry about the cleanliness or health of water at the level of actual infiltration by bacteria or uh, by pollution until the 19th and into the 20th century, which is the truth for just about everywhere. You know, it's it's industrialization, large scale, and the movement of people into dense urban situations and mass that really causes the problem. Um, Dante's time, lots of great water. Speaking of Lago di Bolzina, uh, no problem at all. People understood where to get clean water, how to get clean water, and again, high expectation of having that clean water. And even better than that, having different qualities of water. So at this time or even, you know, Renaissance or earlier mm-hmm. in the in antiquity, people they're literally tasting the water and they're perceiving the differences in the minerality, which like fast forward to modern times and bottled water companies and all sorts of things are actually placing the analysis, the chemical analysis on the labels so that as a layperson, you can see like how much magnesium, how much sodium as if that means anything to most people. Um, no, actually, everyone in Italy is a chemist and fully understands all those things. Um, they do seem to think they are in any case when it comes to their water. Yeah. Um, so is that what's drawing people to specific water consumption or is it more in like the health and benessere, well-being category? Well, I think if we look at the pre-modern world, people in Italy or on the Italian peninsula broadly are really interested in external benefits of water or I'll 
I'll call it that way, even though that's maybe not the best description, but to say the way that water touches your body and is absorbed in ways other than drinking through your mouth, right? Mm -hmm. So we're thinking about like the springs and thermal spas at Ischia or around Padova, um, things like that. Yep. Viterbo. I hate to I hate to say. I don't want. I don't want. All you, over I want Tuscany. You to stop. All over Tuscany. Make it really stop. rich springs. <laughs> guess guess who had beautiful? Who developed a beautiful hot springs? The equivalent of a resort for our purposes today, just outside of Pisa. Don't freaking tell me. It was Matilda of Canosa. Oh, that's cool. No, she's say. she's dope. She's <laughs> dope. I was afraid you were going to say some Medici or whatever. No, Thank God. no, no. No, our, our Countess Matilda, whom we've spoken about at length in another episode, and hopefully our listeners have already heard, but if not, please go back to that and enjoy. One of the things that she was known for was the thermal waters at Casciana Terme. There, this is a little bit confusing. It's outside of Pisa is a place called San Casciano that is a little bit more famous also because it's a kind of a travel hub uh, or transport hub, I should say. Uh, Casciana Terme is a place where you can still go today and enjoy taking the waters, as Italians like to say. And there you have this long, long history of a relationship with water that isn't about what you drink, but is about your health, your body, your uh, understanding of absorption of minerals through that. And as you said, of course, it's present everywhere. We don't have to limit ourselves to Tuscany, even if we're trolling Katie Parla. We have... Funny. uh, <laughs> we have we can go just about anywhere because Italy is a violently seismic place with uh, all kinds of uh, of results of that, including the Apennine range that we know very well, including the many the multiple active or semi-active volcanoes and dormant ones. We have uh, the and the volcanic cha- volcanic chains of islands. Uh, all of those things are reminders of the movement of the earth underneath us, and uh, so too thermal waters, which are found readily in just about every region in one way or another. Yeah, and often the town tells you exactly what it's got going on because it'll be like terme mm-hmm. stuck to the back. Correct. Yes. Yeah. It sounds almost like the medieval and later understanding of like the minerality of water and what benefits that can give for, I don't know, like arthritis or different types of like joint mm-hmm. issues is more advanced than even like the the ancient Roman approach to bobbing around in water, which would have been maybe not, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but people would go to the baths and soak and do sorts of things like to relax their body, but maybe without a, a reflection on the, the mineral quality of the water. I'm not sure. Well, I will say that in the, especially the later Middle Ages, there was a great development of attention to that. And this has to do also with some of the things that I make mention of often on our episodes, uh, which is the understanding of the humoral balance in your body, which comes to this particular uh, historical moment and this particular cultural context through the Arabic commentators on Aristotle filtering into the uh, Mediterranean and then the greater European continental kind of uh, philosophical and medicinal context. And people become really interested in how to make sure that their bodies stay balanced Again, none so that's of like these... the four humors and like mm-hmm. the blood and the bile yeah. and all that stuff. Yeah, and it's exactly that. And that I think I 
I shy away from the details there sometimes only because I think that you start to lose the forest for the trees kind of thing where it sounds weirder than it is, but actually... I'm on board. Yeah, well, and of course, I mean, all of these things are things that we still think about and are extremely interested in today, right? So we're, I mean, having balance, um, adjusting your intake, your consumption, the way that you interact with the things that come into your body in an effort to feel more fully yourself, right? And that was always the point behind it. And so water, either as drinking water or as soaking water, which was very important, as you said, coming from an ancient Roman world of the baths being a place that also housed this incredibly important cultural component for the community of creating friendships, maintaining those friendships, creating political alliances, um, having private space that also functioned as a semi-public space for exchange, et cetera, et cetera. We have that kind of moving into the Middle Ages, people becoming even more interested in how that can affect the individual body and create a better version of yourself, which ostensibly then could be a contributor to the community in a better way as a result. And then you come up through the early modern into the modern to a space in which people start to adapt that as a uh, an option for health and wellness together in a really kind of integrated way up to and including the kind of a seemingly bizarre contemporary reality where you pick up a bottle of water here and it has these nutritional facts on it. And to an American mind, you look at it and say, how does, what is, what could be in here? It's water. There should be one ingredient, right? But instead, as you say, there's this vast list of, of mineral possibilities. Yeah. The label also labels, I should say, there are hundreds of bottled water companies. They tend to kind of all have the same vibes. Yeah. The name of like a spring or some sorgente, like yeah. like often with a saint's name attached to it, um, or something fun and flirty like brio blue. Yeah, but uh, frizzantissimo, frizzantissimo, <laughs> um, or leggermente gasato. <laughs> but there's also a lot of claim of like promoting digestion that's going on. So yeah. the marketing around bottled water is not just like hydrate yourself and like, look at these minerals are going to help you be great and stuff. But also the claim that whatever the nature's concoction of that particular spring is, is going to promote digestion, which is why it's so ironic to me that the tap water, which comes from some of the same sources as the bottled water in Rome, um, people think it's bad for your liver and will like mess up your digestion. But I think that's just a very powerful bottled water lobby that's infiltrated people's brains so that they buy bottled stuff because the tap water here is exceptional. Yeah. It is crazy to me that anyone pays for water twice. (laughs) Actually, I will say chilled Roman water is some of the most refreshing beverage you could possibly ask for. You want to be quenched? I Take a sip of that chilled water. I'm not getting you right now. I keep a carafe in my fridge here all the time. It is, I, it's in even New York and I come from a state known for the champagne of tap water. I, I find Roman water to be a water that I specifically don't add, for example, slices of lemon or cucumber or fresh mint or other things that I sometimes do to my water in other places because I love the taste of Roman water. Back up. What's the champagne? Is it Saratoga Springs something or other? Uh, What's going no, on? No, New York City tap water. Oh, true. Yeah, okay. Yeah, Touche. Yeah, My yeah, bad. Yeah. New York City tap water. The only uh, public water source that doesn't pass through a filter. That's what makes it so special. I like that. Yeah. I mean, obviously your buildings 
water and what the city gets from the watershed are two different things because I know plenty of people have bad water in New York. (laughs) That being said, there's a relatively high quality of water in where in the areas we grew up in the U.S. It's absolutely not the case in many other places. And a reminder, once again, back to my original point, that the tendency to look at things like water quality as some kind of primitive medieval loss that we have luckily progressed past is totally ridiculous because poor water quality is a continuing presence for communities that are underserved, including within the United States, but also, of course, beyond. And uh, it's something that in an Italian context would be perceived as so radically unacceptable. An absolute transgression. Yeah. The only, I mean, it really is perceived as a, an absolute bare minimum requirement for any civilization. Mm -hmm. You provide clean water to your community, period. There is no other way. (laughs) That is, uh, the Romans built themselves uh, largely upon the ability to provide people with bread and water, and their success for multiple centuries was contingent upon that continued presence and trust in that. And that was now going on more than 2,000 years ago, even in its infancy. And uh, we see the problem persisting in terms of less successful political structures. So take that and do with it what you will. (laughs) But you know what, Katie? Apart from long history, water in an Italian context remains super interesting. And I just love how much I can do with it when I get here. <laughs> I mean, what are, you, what are you doing with water, Danielle? Are you making a pizza? Are you making a bread? <laughs> I, that's are you making the pro- a soup? That's everything, right? That's everything. Maybe the, you the, make the pasta. Maybe I'm making the pasta. And I am interested in the quality of water for all of those things. First of all, the consumption that we're talking about, the mode and the way it affects all of the kind of essentials that you just mentioned, pizza, pasta, bread, but every actually other thing in some way indirectly. Um, But then also day-to-day consumption and how people enjoy different waters in different ways, which I think is really anathema to an American existence, at least if we can you know, continue to con- contrast with our most obvious uh, other interlocutor. Uh, I mean, people here, and this was something I came up with my students all the time, they thought it was hilarious how I had different waters for different purposes, or I had malt whenever we had dinner together, especially if they were invited to my uh, faculty apartment to host them, we would, I would always have multiple different kinds of water on the table. And they just thought, you know, what's going on here? Why are they, why is there so much water all the time? What's the difference? Where's the wine? <laughs> well, there was also plenty of that, not to worry. But, you know, Katie, what are people doing with water here? And what are the options when you get to Rome? Well, whether you're at a bar or a.k.a. cafe, a trattoria, ristorante, you're going to be presented with various water options. If you're, if you're at a bar that subscribes to a sort of like Southern Italian vibe, you're not just going to have to order water and pay for it as part of your order alongside your coffee. You're actually mm-hmm. going to be given a glass of water, usually leggermente frizzante. And that is supposed to like both palate cleanse as well as stimulate digestion 
Um, and so really like thinking about how the body is influenced by the whole experience of that coffee ritual. Meanwhile, if you sit down at a trattoria, hmm. osteria, ristorante, you're going to be presented with water options. Uh, tap water is not one of them. You can ask for l'acqua del rubinetto. Hmm. Uh, often people will blow off your question and pretend that they don't have a tap, um, even though they are clearly boiling pasta back there. <laughs> but uh, you'll be given options of uh, still water and sometimes a medium sparkle and mm -hmm. a deep sparkle, mm -hmm. but usually one or the other. Mm -hmm. And then you can make your own cocktail if you like a medium sparkle and then only have the mm -hmm. very sparkly. You can mix still and very sparkly and get your leggermente. Um, yeah. And then in, let's see, where else do you encounter like the actual water menu? Let's say you're balling and you go to La Pergola. You open up Heinz Beck's menu <laughs> And you're like, ah, this looks delicious. What should I drink? And then you're handed the water menu and guided through it by the water sommelier mm -hmm. who can break down all the nuances of the water's flavor, provenance, mineral content, and uh, sort of digestive potentials. Um, but let's say you're not going out to any of these places. You're just kicking it in Rome. You're not hungry at all. You just want to drink water. Well, then you can sidle up to one of the Nazani, which are those public fountains that have water spewing out of them. You plug up the bottom of the spout, and a little spout of water shoots out, and you can drink unglamorously, but efficiently, <laughs> a little sip of water. Um, hopefully there hasn't been a dog there lapping at the at yeah. the spigot, which always happens. Then I have to get into an argument with people about, like, bring a bowl for your dog. This is a people fountain. <laughs> anyway, always looking for a fight at a fountain, this, this one over here. Who is um, <laughs> But... Uh, but yeah, you're sort of confronted with all of these freshwater options. And it's, I mean, it's important to learn the nomenclature. So yeah. uh, there are different ways to call water in different parts of Italy. But in Rome, we call still water lisha. Mm -hmm. We call the um, sparkling water leggermente, gas, uh, leggermente frizzante, if it's like mm -hmm. lightly sparkling. You could also call it leggermente gasata. It's like menosato, anche se l'ho detto prima, mm -hmm. scusa. Uh, and then there's frizzante. I always say... Frizzantissimo, mm -hmm. hoping that they'll have something crazy like <laughs> Nepi Rosa, which is the elusive red bottle. It's very Nepi. hard. Oh, God, it's so rare. Think about it all the time. I know. I dream of it. I wake up in the night wondering if it will visit me. It burns, Danielle. I love it. Oh, God. And I like that. It's, I know. It's one of our, one of the things that bonds our souls is that we both love an, a water that is so gazata that it will... It will hurt not only our own esophagi, but also those of the children who come after us. Exactly. Yeah, it's uh, it's got a legacy, that <laughs> level of sparkle. So the other ways in which we encounter water are in coffee. And a lot of people swear that the water um, source called the Aqua Virgo, which supplies part of central Rome, makes the best coffee. I would argue that the other elements of the coffee make the mineral content and quality of the water irrelevant. <laughs> if not 100% irrelevant, then maybe 1,000% yeah. irrelevant. Um, also, there's, you know, especially now there's a lot of talk about like hydration levels in pizza, whereas mm -hmm. maybe five years ago, no one was really thinking about hydration yeah. or flour provenance or anything like that. Um, people do think about it. Baking is like a cool thing. It's not just the pandemic that made people think about this stuff. It was already an ongoing conversation. And so water being used in pizza al taglio in its various forms, in bread in its various forms, is often uh, imbued with some sort of spectacular 
function. I mean, we're from the tri-state area. People always say like bagels in New York are great because of the water. That's bullshit. Mm -hmm. Um, In my recently published uh, cookbook co-author with Dan uh, Richer, The Joy of Pizza, we have a water section. We literally could have just had one line. The water doesn't matter because it's the the action of the fermentation. It's the enzymes. Mm -hmm. It's all the stuff that's going on. So unless you're using like uh, sludge water, (laughs) it's like not even water, then it's actually the yeast and all the the, uh, flour components and the salt that are having a much greater impact Mm -hmm. than the water. And that's true in bread. And that's true in pizza. And you can disagree with me, but you're wrong. (laughs) I'm sorry. That's that's a fact. <laughs> well, no, to your point, I mean, you're looking at a much simpler equation there, which is to say either the water is good or bad. And we're using the word good to mean healthy and not filled with actual detritus or other, mm-hmm. you know, you know, visible issues. In the case of something that has that much activity later, especially if you're introducing yeast, for example, that's, uh, you know, bringing so many more flavor components. Similarly with coffee, the entire point of coffee is that the coffee bean is so powerful and so interesting and so potentially uh, radically different from uh, not only bean to bean, but uh, roast to roast, right? Tostatura, mm-hmm. is that is? Yeah. Um, yeah. So you have um, the, you're, you're kind of shifting the emphasis off of the art and onto the raw material. If the raw material is good, then you go from there. Now, of course, if you're dealing with water that actually does have uh, pollutants in it, where it's a different issue. But sure. if not, if you're shifting towards making good pizza from good water, then now it's up to you because the water's there and it's ready to go. So. And let Dan and I hold your hand and bring pizza joy to your life. By all the means. Joy of Pizza, a New York Times bestseller, available <laughs> where books are sold. <laughs> Wherever your books are sold. Wherever you get your sold books, they've got that. Well, so with all of that in mind, um, what does it mean on the day-to-day, the way people encounter water here? Because we now have managed to talk for a solid half an hour about water, and we have lots to say, obviously, but it's also this kind of weird subject because it's everywhere and nowhere, right? And so um, we we said, okay, you come to a restaurant, they give you the choices. We said that these are the long history principles behind it. But what do people in Italy now and in the future thinking about when they're thinking of their relationship with water? Do you think, Katie, that people are looking at it as something that's influencing their food all the time? Or are they actually moving away from that and, you know, considering it as increasingly less important from that long history we talked about? I mean, I think Definitely when people are thinking about water, they're thinking about how much they're going to pay for it, government subsidies, and whether the privatization of water, which has been proposed at several levels, is going to impact them. And then that's, I think, the foremost yeah, in people's yeah. minds. And that's, an, that's a concept that transcends political party generally mm-hmm. uh, because of exactly what you said before, like the water is uh, it's the responsibility of the government mm-hmm. to provide you with that basic resource. Of course, you're contributing uh, a small amount, but uh, an amount nevertheless of your income to uh, provide that to you, but really just a tiny amount. Um, when it comes to like how 
people are encountering water on the day-to-day. Most people are encountering it in a supermarket mm-hmm. where there is a ton of marketing, um, just a tremendous amount of marketing. And so they're thinking about water in a way that is like quite profound. Mm-hmm. Um, walk down, you know, I, people do this all the time, like whether they're planning on shopping in supermarkets or not, like popping into an Italian supermarket to see what's available. Mm-hmm. You'll see that there are different brands available depending on where you happen to be in Italy um, and uh, different sort of qualities of of or ranges of uh, gassiness might be more dominant in one mm-hmm. place versus another. Um, but yeah, so people are thinking about it like, what am I going to put on the table alongside another beverage? Because it's, yeah. you know, it's rare. Well, I shouldn't say that. It's actually quite common that people drink just water at dinner. Other people are like, that's that should be illegal. That's like not acceptable. You have to drink Coca-Cola, beer, or wine yeah. with dinner. Just as long as you're not drinking a cocktail with dinner, people are like, A-OK. Yeah. But... Yeah, like the water has to be present. It's got to be uh, abundant. And now that I'm kind of like reflecting on it, I think at least in Rome, I haven't encountered this elsewhere. And I've been, we've been on the road a ton. We've been going to different places. I've been up in Venice a lot and I haven't encountered this. But like the water container is actually becoming more of a conversation. Mm, Yes, Um, that's, I agree. That's, that's a new trend for sure, because people did not carry water with them. No. That was not a thing until, I mean, you know, mere minutes ago, as far as I'm concerned with. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. And this is really related to the, I think, Italian awakening about glass and plastic waste. Yeah. There are a lot of uh, locali that have decided to not use glass or plastic. Mm-hmm. They'll give you your water in an aluminum, sealed aluminum bottle mm-hmm. um, and will advertise that they're not that there is zero plastic location. I think this is kind of Europe-wide, but it's something that's really manifested in Italy quite recently. Um, And then the, like, barattolo, like the, the, what is it, like neoprene, whatever, the hiking water bottle is becoming a little bit more common as people are also, I think, reflecting on how much they're spending Mm -hmm. on water with also the, like, idea of how much waste they're generating tied up in that. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. That's that's been the turn that I really witnessed over the last year or two, honestly, even maybe a little bit longer back than that, but more really just a, like there was a huge shift to me having been in exile in the U.S. for a year and a half in COVID and then getting back here and noticing that a lot of people had containers that they were reusing regularly. And I also just think that there's much the way that Italians don't snack, really. Mm. Of course, again, so many little exceptions to that. But on the whole, the idea is that adults have a light breakfast, a substantial lunch, and either a late dinner or a more substantial one, depending on the type of evening it is with very little intermittently. Similarly, you don't, for most of the, you know, 20th into 21st century, and we can, I don't want to generalize beyond that, but for for most of that last period, people didn't really drink water except when you sat down to a meal, right? Mm -hmm. You had water before and after usually and some wine with your food, and that was kind of it. And now there's a greater interest in staying hydrated during the day. Some of that is just a mimicking of an American trend, and there's a real issue to the opposite in the U.S. with people just grossly overhydrating and probably diluting their their body's electrolytes and also becoming just you know, using that as as a kind of a crutch for other reasons. But 
uh, on the flip side, of course, staying hydrated is great and important and allows you to do the kind of frenetic work that a lot of us do now. So Italians having shifted their schedules, especially in urban centers, are now shifting the way that they consume water, at least at that level. Um, I think we could pair that with some with an area in which things have shifted somewhat less, which is to say the idea of thermal waters and the continued love that uh, follows perfectly through that long historical line that we discussed of people using aqua thermali as a, a natural and easy to access and kind of equally populare in the sense of, you mm-hmm. know, for everyone, um, but also sort of luxurious way of restoring the body to equilibrium and finding a moment of relaxation uh, often just outside of the city. So, as we mentioned before, they're available to uh, anyone who is interested in them in just about any region of the peninsula readily. Yeah. I remember my my first trip to Ischia, I visited, I was working on like the rough guide to Naples or something. It was like mm-hmm. an Ischia chapter I was updating. And I like, I went to a really fancy spa called Negombo, which like you can sit under the waterfalls and massage your neck. It's adorable. Yeah. It's on the sea. And then in the interior, there were like, you would walk in and it would just be like packed with German, um, mm-hmm. like arthritis tourism. Yeah. Um, and I, yeah. and like the places, they smelled very medicinal. They looked mm-hmm. very hospital-like. Yeah. But the contrast was severe. Yeah. And since then, I've had the opportunity to, to visit all sorts of other uh, thermal destinations, um, including, you know, near Viterbo, like in the middle of a field where people kind of like randomly gather and it's yeah. like kind of sketch, but also it's free. And more formal places uh, around Padova, which seem to be where, you know, very well-to-do octogenarians will just like tan all day and bob around the water occasionally and like benefit from the luxury that's provided in such a place. Um, do you have any favorite spa I, destinations? I do. It's one, of my, it's one of my favorite things, actually. I have a soft spot for the Casana Terme Stabilimento outside of Pisa as a result of the work that I've done on Matilda of Canossa, obviously, but also because it's easily reached from both Florence and Pisa, places that I've spent a lot of time, Pisa while I was finishing my graduate work, and Florence for before and after that. And uh, it's just a very kind of comfortable, very very middle of the road place in the sense that it's it's lovely, it's uh, well maintained, cultivated, curated, etc. But it's not ultra luxurious, and I think it's been a little while since I was there. But uh, probably, I'm going to guess it costs thirty to forty euros for a day pass, for example. Oh. Um, I love Anischia. I'm a huge fan of Poseidon. Um, speaking oh, of, yeah, speaking of places that are truly inundated by Germans, partly because it's German run, so um, they there's a, a clear channel there. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Poseidon has one of the most both kind of thorough and elaborate setups you could ask for. It's right on the edge of the sea. So uh, not only do they have immediate beach access, which is very beautiful, actually, and not, I mean, the beaches on Ischia in general are, are top-notch for the most part, but uh, this particular 
location is uh, really suggestive. But uh, they then also have baths in ascending temperature up the side of the scoglio, up the side of the cliff from there. So you can do a, a traditional percorso, a, a movement from baths that are, I would say, probably starting at 22 degrees Celsius and then in ascending order up 24, 26, 28, 30, 32. Then Dang. I think it leaps 36 into 40, which Damn. is boiling, it feels like. Mm-hmm. And then you cold plunge into 15. And no. then you can run down the side of the cliff right into the sea, which is... All this sounds like yeah. uh, an accident, like a an airlift situation for me. The running oh, and the... I love it. I, so, mean, I, I've been, I've spent, I've spent long vacations there and short ones. So I'm always very happy to, to go to that particular hot spring establishment. But you run, down, there, you run down the hill into the sea? Yeah, I mean, running might be a strong word, okay. or, you know, with alacrity towards your... <laughs> you don't sit on, you don't sit down and inch your way towards like scoot? No, down no, the, I do. Well, I hill. use my feet, but I... <laughs> you slip? I'm just very curious I, about this. I Well, we'll go one day. I'm surprised okay. we haven't been yet, to be honest. I, I, I really do go relatively often. But it's nice there. I, I love it there. And, uh, I mean, the in the Alto Adige, the Trentino Alto Adige has amazing ones that are looking over the Dolomites. You can be in the snow. Oh my god. In the middle of a hot spring in your bathing in an outdoor natural hot spring in your bathing suit, you know, in the snow. Wow. Uh, I mean, there it's it, to me it's one of the great things to pastimes in general in Italy. It's it is truly wonderful for your health whether it's simply a psychological effect of having been so relaxed and well treated or if it really has very direct connections. I I I'm not that kind of a doctor, but I will tell you that it works for me. <laughs> I love it. Well, yeah. I want to freaking bob around in a yeah. hot spring. I know. I'm about to go online and just book us something. But we got to wrap this up, Katie, and we got to remind our listeners that uh, we have so many more episodes coming out, locked and loaded for them. We have been recording more in studio. We have more travel coming up and already behind us. We have your amazing Joy of Pizza book out, my book Dante's Gluttons on the Horizon for spring 2022. Holler. We have a lot of collaborations coming up with, as always, very, very special discounts and early access for our patrons. And we are going to keep using all the support that our amazing fans have given us and continue to give us to do more and more interesting things. So everyone look out, tell your friends to listen, subscribe, and uh, let them know that it's only going to get better from here. So we appreciate your time and your attention and everything you do for us. Grazie a tutti. Pinel, want to get out of here and drink some water? Yeah, I'm pretty thirsty. (laughs) All right. Ciao. We love our supporters and Hope you become one too by visiting patreon.com backslash golapod. And now is the special shout out time for those who support us at the Ghiotti level. So thanks so much to Gabe Del Virginia of New York City and our buddies, Allison and Gino Ruggiero of Fiorella in Rochester. We also have our wonderful friend Leah at Semolino Artisanal Pasta in Pasadena, California, and Bobby Mazzulo at Mazzulo Pizzeria in Sacramento. Join us for 
more content, early access, special discounts, and news of everything Gola in advance on patreon.com backslash Golapod.